Welcome to True Crime and Red Wine. We're your hosts, Britton Polk and Leslie Winsman. If you found us, you can expect some true crime, rad mysteries, definitely some murder, and you guessed it, red wine. We're just two best friends with a true crime obsession, so pour yourself a glass, sit back, and enjoy. There may be some graphic content and explicit language, so put in the AirPods and let's get to it. Is this the one? So I had to open one to, uh... Oh. I know. It was literally just the devil's, first... Devil's Advocate. 2017. These are three-year-old grapes. Trash. <laughs> Is it? No, it was actually... <laughs> I was just trying to make that little video, so I had to take oh. a couple of sips, and it wasn't... How old is that glass of wine? It's been aerating <laughs> for three hours. Got us a cap salve. Okay, do you want me to read it to you this week? I do. Okay, again, this is Devil's Advocate, which I feel like is really suitable for tonight because we we mostly kept our story secrets. We just, we know who each other's are about. Feels very fitting. Um, this bad girl's from California. I feel like you're telling me like a bedtime story. Mm, let me tell you. Oh, my sexy that, Is that your bedtime story? Ah. <laughs> oh, wait, do you want to pretend you're in kindergarten? Okay, girls. Decadent nature, their cab salve <laughs> delivers deep notes of chocolate, plums, and dark cherry. <laughs> this belongs to special evenings as much as it does to an everyday indulgence. It's in the details. There you go. Makes you want some, huh? <laughs> I feel like last week we didn't talk about something that I was excited to talk about all week. What? Whenever I put up on my Facebook the tell me one really boring thing about yourself. Do you remember what mine was? Um, no. That I said I have cooked pinky fingers. (laughs) (laughs) That was the best. Because look, look at these. This is what I meant to write crooked. Because I. Wow, they're really crooked. They're not cooked. <laughs> you were making fun of my index finger. You have crooked pinkies, you damn hypocrite. What the hell? <laughs> but I didn't even notice. And then someone said something. Oh, Brenda was like, I need to know more about these cooked pinky fingers. <laughs> it was like, what? And then I said, said cooked. Mm-hmm. And then so I, I was said, like, I sound like a crazy person. And then I said, in our house, we eat chicken fingers. That's right. Not, <laughs> Not pinky fingers. <laughs> From humans. But at least you're now calling them the pinky finger because <laughs> little fingers. Before it was just little fingers. <laughs> oh, you know what? I've been meaning to tell you this because I don't know if I'm the only person, probably. Um, probably. On the way into the neighborhood, there's that, that chain link fence that they've decorated with words. And like uh-huh. every single time I'm driving up, they changed it this week, I noticed. Because I every single time I drive by it, it says, I thought. Welcome back, Flockas. Like, <laughs> just in black. <laughs> it says Falcons, not the Flockas. Flockas. But, like, I realize it when I get close enough and, like, I turn the corner, but it says Falcons. But, like, the angle coming in, it just looks like it says, Welcome back, Flockas. Damn, you think this is the hood. Mother Flockas. Uh-huh. Welcome back. No, I was thinking of Flocka from OITNB. Oh, mm-hmm. Maritza and Flocka. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God, girl. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep, that's what I thought it was. And it's a Catholic church, so I was like, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but 
but they're definitely the Falcons, not the Flockas. It was a good try, though. <laughs> I'm going to forever call them the Flockas. <laughs> They'll appreciate it. I don't think they will. No. <laughs> I think we should do the My Favorites. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything? Well, not just like off the... You go first. Okay. Well, but it's because of you. My favorite this week. Because it was Verity. Well, you are my favorite. <laughs> no, I take it back. Leslie's my favorite. <laughs> my favorite every week. That's this week's favorite for me. What's yours? Oh, shit. Um, well, if I just made you my favorite. Oh, yours. You. Well, now I don't believe you. Forget it. My favorite before you made me say you. Listen, I'm better once I'm <laughs> drinking. Like, give me a second, okay? No, my favorite was going to be Verity. Mm. By Colleen Hoover. So good. It was so freaking twisted. It is a book that will haunt you forever. You will never feel at peace. No. Like, you can never actually figure out Because your brain can't. It can't decide on nope. an ending. Nope. It's just never, ever, ever going to be done. No. It was insane. So good. Two days. Well, two nights. I don't read during the day because I'm always editing and stuff during the day. One night Dallas was reading. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to start this book because I've had it in my library for a bit. I started reading at like seven, finished at midnight. And the next night, and I was like... Peace out. I went, I loaded my detox bath. I sat in there and I read my book for like two hours. My God. Did you have any water left in your body? Oh, maybe not. That's why you look so thin. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good bath. Just getting that detox bath. Oh, it's so good. But I get so sweaty in there. Because it, it has to be, like, scorching hot. Yeah, no. If I don't get out of the bath with, like, red marks like I'm sunburned, it wasn't a bath. Yeah. Like, that steam better be billowing. Mm-hmm. Okay. My favorite. We went to Taste of Texas Saturday night mm-hmm. to celebrate the boys' first communion. Well, they now have truffle butter. <gasps> and that's oh, new. Did you just pour it in your mouth like a real lady? So, I know you won't know this. Oh, my gosh. You don't listen to that kind of music. But there is definitely a song <laughs> with truffle butter in it. And that truffle butter is, like, the funk nasty. Stop! And the no! whole time, Allison's like, how's that truffle butter? I'm like, shut your mouth. That's disgusting. Stop trying to ruin this. So, what kind of truffle butter is your favorite? Which one are you talking about? Ew. <laughs> what the hell? No, that just sounds so good. Like, the good one. Like, <laughs> God, you're on a roll with the camera. Just smear that truffle butter on your steak. Delish. That sounds like heaven. It was. I love truffle everything. Truffle fries. I saved chocolate cake for you. You're the best. I saw that picture. I didn't even have dinner. We should. I should probably go get it in a minute. I need cake. Yes. Do you want cake cake? and wine? Mm -hmm. Mm, Maybe. But seriously, I saw that on Instagram, and I was like. What is this cake? Oh my god! And then I spent five minutes making that little picture for you <laughs> to save it. <laughs> like threatened my life not to bring you some, and I saved you some. Yes. What did I write on it? Bitch, you better have cake for me or something. Oh, like that. Yes. And then it said like sharing is caring at the bottom. <laughs> So we both went dark this week. Yes. I'm so excited for yours. I was like putting mine together and sort of was like my eye was twitching because like I put it in there. Good. 
also, that's what she said. Um, hey, yo, from London. <laughs> <laughs> I come from the London. Oh, <laughs> uh, but it was a lot. And I was like, no, I'm just going to do it because I, I said, if I'm going to tell this story, gotta just do it. I'm just going to tell the story because I don't like whenever I hear a podcast or something and I feel like I have to go like, research stuff like details yeah so i was i just there have been like certain episodes where we have been really delicate yeah but But i feel like this one is so overdone the one that you're doing not overdone but like so done Mm -hmm. that like at this point you can just like be candid everyone's probably heard it exactly and if you haven't heard it you're in for a treat. Like, Get your drinks. Pour a big one. <laughs> yeah. Because your world is about to be rocked. It is. So I'm first this week, yeah? Yes, you are. All right. You actually know. I did. I kind of guessed, but I was right. You also do the editing, so it's real weird that you don't know and I do know. That's true. Like, you listen to it more than I do. I definitely do. I haven't thought about that. Maybe I should make a mental note to just pay attention to what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's not alarming at all. You're just like, dur, 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 gonna edit here, cut here. Turns out really well. <laughs> Fine. Coming. Oh, my, my first word is misspelled. Damn it. Yeah, it's a good start. All right, I am doing the Manson family killings. Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. Went there. Yep, I did. Okay, so I, I feel like I wanted to do a, a slightly different take on it than a lot of the stories because Ooh. everyone dives heavy into who Charles Manson was okay. because he's the, the leader. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I thought it was way more creepy when I learned who the other family members were. Okay. So I'll talk a little bit about him, but I really wanted to dive into who the murderers actually were mm-hmm. because in case you don't know this, I know that, you know, I know Charles Manson didn't murder anybody. Nope. Never Not went one person. Houses. Nope. So, um, all right, let's do it. All right, Charles Manson was born to a teenage mother. She was 15 in 1934, and he lived most of his childhood with relatives because his mom actually went to prison when he was like four or five. So um, he did actually, they took him to see her in prison, and just really, it's sad because he was so little. Wait, I have a really fun fact about his childhood. What? Yeah. No, I want to hear if you... Wait, no, what? Is that all you have about his childhood? I didn't do a lot about his childhood. One time she took him out to eat mm-hmm. when she was out of jail, and she uh, traded him for um, a six-pack of beer. Super. And truffle butter? No. That oh. Bitch didn't want truffle <laughs> butter. She's like, I didn't that. know that. I didn't even know Miracle that he whip. got to go back with her when she got out. Yeah. So this was after prison? I think he probably lived with his grandparents and he was just like visiting her. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she had him and took him out to Clearly eat. Clearly she was a very classy lady. She loved him a lot. Yes. Poor guy. Because she went to prison for... Mm-hmm. S- excuse me. Damn it. Already. Already. I'm not even in, out of my first paragraph. Wasn't it for stealing beer or stealing something from a convenience store? I don't remember. I don't remember. So he lived with family, uh, relatives. And then also by the time he was like a mid teenager, he was in and out of institutions and boys homes. So in his early twenties, he was married twice and he fathered a son, which like, those are genes that we don't want passing on everybody. Like keep it in your pants. If you feel mildly like a cult leader, just saying, I, I think I have referred to you a couple times. As a cult you leader. have, I should have kept it in my pants. No, we can't. We can't live without those girls, but I'm going to watch them carefully. It doesn't work. I think I can start like a cult, and then people find out who I am, and they're like, nope, hate the bitch. They hang out with you like twice, like, oh. 
Ooh, it wasn't an act. Nope. She's just really this loud. <laughs> She's just so loud and annoying all the time. She really <laughs> just thinks everything is positive. Got it. I try. I couldn't make the story positive. I <laughs> it's just nuts. Okay, so Manson, after all of that, being married and having kids, he kind of lived here and there, and he wandered around Berkeley and San Francisco, which at the time were cities that were being flooded with young people who were trying to embark on a new life. Like, remember, this is hippy-dippy age. Right. So, this um, is late 60s, right? Yeah. yeah. So let's not act like we don't know that Manson was completely charismatic. And yeah. Honestly, he wasn't a bad-looking guy. In his younger years, he had like a unibrow. Suit. Yeah, like he wasn't a sexy guy, but he wasn't bad looking, and he was charismatic. Well, they did so many like hallucinogenic drugs too, so I'm sure he looked real good in like one he of his like, like wherever he was located. <laughs> I gotta cover this eye. Yeah, no, this one. I like that one. Wait, I'm sure he's morphing that one. <laughs> and he's swirling. Um, so. By the time that he was in San Francisco, he had easily amassed like this small following of people who were primarily women. So in 1968, he took off with several of his followers to Los Angeles to pursue a music career because he learned to play guitar in prison. Mm, classy fella. Um, Manson, again, master of his craft, was able to easily convince them to follow along. So... Basically, he told them that at the time in Hollywood, it was, like, really common for all the hippies to hang out with the Hollywood elites, which, like, maybe that was true. I don't know. That's what he was telling them. He told them whatever they wanted to hear to get them to go with him. So uh, while they were there, Manson even managed to form a friendship with Dennis Wilson, which was the drummer for the Beach Boys. <laughs> I never got into them, but I know everybody else loves them. Um, and Manson used his female followers to lure in men to join the group and to support it. Clever. It is clever. They're like, look at my boobs. Join our cult. Um, (laughs) works every time. Every time. Bring fries. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, I would have gone for fries. (laughs) You don't have to tell. Are they Whataburger with gravy fries? Is there ketchup? (laughs) (laughs) Only Whataburger ketchup. (laughs) Yeah, spicy. (laughs) Listen. So after bouncing around Los Angeles for a bit, Manson and the family, which is what they eventually became called, they settled at the Spawn Ranch, which was an old film and television set in the western San Fernando Valley, which sounds really cool. Yeah. Like, I want to live there. You don't. Just not with him. No, you don't. Okay, so I wanted to paint you a picture of who the followers were, or they'd say, like, the members of the family. Okay. So there are six of them that we've come to know over the years because of the Tate-LaBianca uh, murders, which, if you don't know this, those are two separate things. It became hyphenated. Okay, Leslie Van Hooten. Mm-hmm. Those Leslies are crazy. She is legit cray. That shit. So she was actually a normal middle-class girl Mm -hmm. who was homecoming queen at her high school. And it didn't take long after meeting Bobby Beausoleil and Catherine Gypsy Cher that she joined them on a trip. So these are just friends that she's made. So the two were already part of Manson's family and they welcomed her in and they hit the road. She just took off with them. So she turned 19 in the summer of 1968 and that's when her life you know, took the big turn. So there was discussion of a man, Charles Manson, who everybody talked about, and they really talked up this guy. So um, 
eventually she got to meet this man that Cher, the girl, Catherine Gypsy Cher, was telling her was Christ-like and had all the answers that she was seeking. Okay. So she meets him, and uh, they've been telling her that he would change her life forever. Talking this guy up. Like, not in a good way, though. Yeah. So she finally met him, and he sucked her in. And she says, all we did was listen to the Beatles' White Album and read Revelations. Mm -hmm. Those were their days. That's Mm -hmm. what they did. So normal girl. Tex Watson. There wasn't a lot on this guy's past. Psycho. Yeah. So Tex grew up attending the Coteville Methodist Church. And in high school, he was an honor student and an athlete. That's really all there is to say about him. He's like huge, All-American boy. Yeah. Humongous. Just yeah. normal guy, Catholic or Methodist school, athlete. Don't you be trying to blame the Catholics. Ay. I hear you. I'm sorry. Freudian slip. Flockas. Um, Susan Atkins was described by those who knew her as quiet, a self-conscious girl who belonged to her school's glee club and the local church choir. So, in 1967, she met Manson when he played guitar at the house where she was living with several friends. When the house was raided several weeks later by the police, Atkins was left homeless. Why was the house raided? Like, what a shady... Because she she started being a shithead in high school and lived with random people. So, those are the people she chose. Okay. Um, so, she was homeless, so Manson invited her to join the family. He said that they were... <laughs> They were embarking on a summer road trip in a converted school bus painted completely black. And she was nicknamed Sadie Mae Glutz by Manson um, and a man who was helping create her fake ID. So they just decided on this name. Um, Atkins later claimed to have believed Manson was Jesus. Also, if back in the day when I was 19, a guy... With a guitar said, in do you want to go Jesus. You'd be like, yep. on a summer road trip in this converted bus? I'd be like, give me a flower crown and let's do it. I'd have been like, where's my pepper spray? Get the fuck away from me, you crazy hobo. I'd be like, Leslie, just come with me. That's fine. You would have. That was exactly how we would have handled yep. it. Like, I'm going to throat punch you. And you'd be like, yes. we're going. It's, you're giving me a new name and we're going to listen to the Beatles? Let's go. She's a prickly pear. She'll warm up. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. I'd be, I'd be dead. I don't, I, I don't think I'd be a murderer. Okay. Oh, my God. Like, that's what she turned into. Patricia Krenwinkel. Great name. Krenwinkel. Mm-hmm. Chris Krinkle? I don't know. Patricia was often... Okay, this one's kind of sad. Okay, Patricia was often bullied at school by other students... And she suffered from low self-esteem and was frequently teased for being overweight and for an excessive growth of body hair caused by an endocrine endocrine condition. So that's kind of sad. It's sad. I know. So she met Charles Manson in Manhattan Beach in 1967. In later interviews, Krenwinkel stated that she had sex with Manson the first night they met and that he was the first person who told her she was beautiful. Aww. Also, don't believe the creepy guy. I was supposed to say he was preying on your insecurities, yes. but still, poor thing. <sighs> but it was whatever. Yeah, she's a grown up, of course. So this girl, um, oh, I said, of course, she was mesmerized by Manson's charisma and that he was doting on her because no one ever had before. Yeah. So she became known as Katie, which seems like an odd short name for Patricia. <laughs> yeah. How we go from go Katie from, like Crin- I don't know, to Pat? Like Pat would have been a better choice. <laughs> Katie. Katie. And um, her and the others went on a drug and sex-filled 18-month tour of the American West in the old school bus. It's the American dream. It is. She says, 
We were just like a bunch of wood nymphs and wood creatures. We would run through the forest with flowers in our hair, and Charles would have a small flute. What? And I also, why do I picture them naked in this? Like something about like I thought they looked like fairies. I was like picturing with wings and like I'm like wood nymph <laughs> with a flute, and all I can think of is like they're naked and like skipping. And he has like goat legs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what is that from? Like, um, Fantasia. I feel like that was in Fantasia, the half wooden, the half horse people. And then I feel like there were goats. Like centaurs? I don't think so. I think there were the, the Maybe goats. Maybe so. I'm not, I don't. I mean, I haven't seen it since I was like nine. Right. So, and I wrote again, yes, I'd be in like before the weird shit. I'd totally be in. <laughs> no, nope. keep your flute to yourself, sir. <laughs> don't want your truffle butter. <laughs> keep your tiny, tiny flute away from my face. Okay. Grogan was a musician and artist. He dropped out of high school and was involved in minor crimes. When his frustrated parents lost hope, they decided to drop him off at Spawn Ranch. He was immediately taken in by the ranch hands and began to do odd jobs around the ranch. So he was a member of Spawn Ranch before the Mansons came in Mm -hmm. at all. He was already working there. Um, He was often considered dumb by the other family members, earning him the nickname Scramblehead. Oh, that's kind. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But some felt he was only playing dumb, which I've known girls like that. Linda Caspian, Caspian, I can't decide how to say that, was described by friends, neighbors, and teachers as intelligent, a good student, but a starry-eyed romantic. She was regarded as kind and shy, but forced to grow up too soon. She dropped out of high school and ran away from home at the age of 16 and traveled uh, to the West Coast looking for God. At the age of 16, she married, and by the time she met Charles Manson, she had been married, divorced, remarried, had a baby, and was separated from her husband. God, doesn't waste time. Yes. So I don't know how old she was at that point, but um, by the time her second husband had decided to leave her, that's when she met Manson, which is a great in, you know. So uh, she said that Manson was handsome and seemed to be Christ-like. Manson talked with her about why she had come to the ranch, and after feeling her legs... He accepted her. I don't know what the hell that means. Damn. What is that? I don't know. It's like, damn, girl, those are thick with two C's. I like them. (laughs) So I don't, that's what they would say about mine. Okay. That night, Manson and Linda had sex in a Spawn Ranch cave. Linda adopted the same attitude towards Manson, Manson that the other girls at the ranch had, which was, we always wanted to do anything and everything for him. Wow. Yeah. And she began joining the family members on their, quote, creepy crawls. Creepy crawls. Creepy crawls. Quietly sneaking into random homes in Los Angeles to steal money while the occupants slept. Ugh. Yes. All right. So this is where we get into kind of who Manson was at this point. So it says Manson's sermons initially revolved around loving oneself and your fellow human. Again, I can get on board with this. He knew the Bible inside and out, and he tantalized his audience of abandoned youths with lo- or into loyal devotion. So he just said all the things, like he knew exactly what to say, and they just kind of became like Pied Piper rats, like anything for this guy. Of course, it helped that he provided them all with heavy amounts of LSD, but did not take them himself so that he would stay sharp-minded. So he knew what was going on. Yeah. They didn't. Okay. 
And Manson was desperate for the race war between America's black and white citizens to begin. He named it Helter Skelter after the Beatles song from the White Album, the one that they were all completely obsessed with, mm-hmm. which that became their mantra of sorts um, in their new home with Islam Ranch. I got this and didn't drink it. <laughs> so initially, Manson told the group that during the war, they all would hide in a hole in the desert and they would emerge once the war was over. He said black people would win the war, but they would be unable to govern themselves and that they would turn to him. Oh, because so they want a white everything. savior, I guess. That's what he thought. Yeah. Okay. So while Manson managed to guide his group pretty well in the beginning to follow all of this, there were some of the people in the group that became a little like dissuaded with all of his prophecies. Yeah. They were like, okay, I don't know about this because it sounds insane. Mm-hmm. So, um, Manson began to say that the war wasn't starting fast enough. So they were needing to prompt it to begin. So that's where they would start murdering wealthy white people. And that's where the shit hits the fan. Okay. Get your drink. Mm. It's going to get bad. I know. Maybe so. Yeah. Oh, hell, we didn't even cheers. And this is not a good time to cheers. So I'm just <laughs> not going to do it. Well, cheers at the end. I can't cheers to this. It's such a good sound. It really it? is. It's so beautiful. <sighs> All right. August 8th, 1969, Manson announced, now is the time for Helter Skelter. You get the like, was Helter Skelter even defined in the Beatles album? Like, Did it have a meaning? So it does. Okay, Helter Skelter does have a meaning. Okay, because I cannot. Um, I want to say it's like look it up? insanity, like disorder. Oh, look it up though. I feel like that's what Helter Skelter meant. Hey Siri, what does Helter Skelter mean? Here's what I found from Wikipedia.org: A Helter Skelter is an amusement ride with a slide built in a spiral around a high tower. Users climb up inside the tower. And slide down the outside, usually on a matter Hessian burlap sack. I Ooh. did know that that's what it was, but I think it also has a meaning like a look up helter skelter in like England or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I just always thought that's what it meant. Going back even further, this oh. term comes from words. what disorderly haste or confusion. That was in the 1500s. Oh, so I was right just a long time ago. Got it. <laughs> Paul McCartney was looking to write a song that was just super loud and jarring and unlike any other song they had done before. And after listening to Helter Skelter, hard agree. But he is singing about the slide thing. Yeah. But the term Helter Skelter was... Okay. So it means both. Got it. There we go. So, where are we? Oh, he believed... Manson believed that the Beatles were sending coded messages in their songs to start a racial war. Yes. So mm-hmm. he thought the Beatles were telling him to do this. He thought that it was a prophecy in Revelation. And the Beatles That were- this was all tied together. Oh, yeah. Okay. So Linda Caspian, um, this was after he announced that it was time for Helter Skelter. Linda Caspian was directed by Manson to gather a knife, a change of clothes, and her driver's license. Then to accompany three other members of the family, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel, to the residence of the filmmaker Roman uh, Polanski and his wife Sharon Tate at 10050 Cielo Drive in Los Angeles. In the home at the time were rising actress Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring, 
coffee heiress Abigail Folger, um, an aspiring screenwriter. I, what would be your guess? Warchick? Wozchick. Frykowski. Frykowski. That was just a weird first name. And a recent high school graduate, Stephen Parents. Like Manson. Stephen Parent was just thrown in. Yeah, the mix. he was going to visit the caretaker or the caregiver at the home. He was like, just like, saying hi. So Manson had instructed the family to totally destroy everyone in it and to do it as gruesome as you can. Watson climbed the telephone pole near the security security gate and cut the house phone line because no cell phones. The entire Manson group then climbed over the fence when a car from the guest house approached driven by 18-year-old Stephen Parents, Watson ignored his pleas for mercy and shot Parent four times in the chest and abdomen at point-blank range. Um, Watson then ordered Linda to remain outside the residence, and she stood by the car while Watson, Susan, and Patricia entered the house. Frykowski was sleeping on the living room couch. Uh, Watson kicked him in the head, and Frykowski asked him who he was and what he was doing there. Watson replied, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Freaking creeper. Uh, Watson began to tie Tate and Sebring together by their necks with rope, which he had brought, and he slung it over one of the living room ceiling's beams. So I don't... I was wondering, like, were they planning on hanging them? I don't know. That just seemed like the visual of that was really weird and uncomfortable, like the rest of this entire thing. (laughs) Okay, um... Sebring protested the murder's rough treatment of the pregnant Tate, so Watson shot him. Folger was taken momentarily back to her bedroom for her purse, and she gave the murderers $70. Watson then stabbed Sebring seven times. Linda Caspian testified at one point that she heard horrible screams, that's her quote, of the victims, um, and she left the car at that point because it was, like, getting too real. Yeah. She said, I started to run towards the house. I wanted them to stop. I knew what they had done to that man, referring to Stephen Parent, that she saw get shot outside, and that they were killing these people. I just wanted them to stop. So approaching the house from the driveway, because she was going up to put an end to all of this, um, Caspian was met by Frykowski because he had got away. He was running out the front door. And Caspian said in her testimony, quote, there was a man just coming out of the door and he had blood all over his face and he was standing by a post. We looked into each other's eyes for a minute and I said, oh God, I'm so sorry. Please make it stop. Then he fell to the ground and into the bushes. Then Watson repeatedly stabbed Frykowski and hit him in the head with a gun butt. Mm-hmm. God, Brendan. Yeah, I know. Okay, then when mayhem ensued, Patricia uh, Krinwinkle dragged the coffee heiress Abigail Folger from her bedroom to the living room, fought with her, and stabbed her. When Folger tried to escape following the first round of stabbing, Patricia chased Folger as she ran outside screaming. According to Krinwinkle, she pinned her to the ground and further stabbed her. The victim pleaded her to stop by saying, stop, I'm already dead. Krinwinkle continued to stab Folger brutally um, so that Folger's white nightgown appeared to be red when the police investigators found oh, him the following day. After stabbing Folger, Kernwinkle went back inside and summoned Watson, who also stabbed Folger. During her trial, Kernwinkle said, quote, I stabbed her and I kept stabbing her. When asked how it felt, she replied, nothing. I mean, what's there to describe? I was just there and it was right. 
What a psycho. Like, any remorse at all? And these were, like, normal freaking kids yep. before all of this. She was the one that was, like, hairy and teased, right? Yeah. Like, that's what you get, bitch. That's fucking karma. Yes. <laughs> that's why you were born <laughs> hairy. Because you were going to do this. you were a demon. They stabbed her a total of 28 times. Frykowski suffered, listen to this, this is so bad, 51 stab wounds and had also been struck 13 times in the head with the butt of Watson's gun, which bent the barrel and broke off one side of the gun grip. Wow. Like, overkill. In the house, Tate pleaded to be allowed to live long enough to give birth. So sad. And she offered herself as a hostage in an attempt to save the life of her unborn child. But both Atkins and Watson stabbed Tate 16 times, killing her. Manson had told the women to, quote, leave a sign, something witchy. So Atkins wrote pig on the front door in Tate's blood. So terrible. So Manson, I guess they all get back. And Manson is apparently displeased with the panic of the murder victims and I guess everything and how bananas it all went. I guess people getting out of the house. stomach is in a knot Yes. It's a horrible story. It's so much. So he didn't like it. He was displeased. So he took the four murderers plus Leslie Van Hooten and Steve Grogan, Scramblehead, in case you don't remember, on a drive the following night to show them how to do it. He instructed them to grab a change of clothes and to get into the car. He ordered Linda Caspian again to drive the group to 3301 Waverly Drive. Manson and other family members had attended a party at the rented home of Harold True in Los Feliz, located at 3267 Waverly Drive. Manson didn't want to kill True because he was afraid that it would easily be linked back to him. So he just decided to kill the neighbors. That. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's how they picked. They just kind of settled on the next door neighbor's house. So scary, isn't it? Yes. So, and okay, so that house was uh, Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. According to like a store clerk I read, they had been visiting their kids, like families and stuff earlier that night. And they'd gone to a convenience store where there were already newspaper articles about the Tate house murders. Mm-hmm. And Rosemary LaBianca said the store clerk said that she was reading it and was like clearly like shaken by all of that. Cause that was only like a few blocks away. Yes. The houses. Mm -hmm. So she was like terrified that this was happening around there. This was the same night that this happened. So, uh, Lino was a supermarket executive and Rosemary was a co-owner of a dress shop. Just normal people. Manson and Watson disappeared up the driveway and then returned to say they had tied up the house's occupants, which were just those two. He then sent Watson back up with Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Hooten. As Watson related it, Manson had roused sleeping Lena LaBianca from the couch at gunpoint, and he had Watson bind his hands. So Manson did go into this one, and he helped, but he didn't technically murder anybody. Rosemary was brought into the living room from the bedroom and Watson followed Manson's instructions to cover their heads with pillowcases, which he bound into place with lamp cords. Oh my God. Manson sent Krenwinkel and Van Hooten into the house with instructions that the couple should be killed. At that point, Manson, Linda Caspian, Susan Atkins, and Grogan drove off and just left the others there. Mm-hmm. So back at the LaBianca house, Watson sent the women in from the kitchen to the bedroom where Rosemary had been returned. And while he went to the living room, he began stabbing Lino LaBianca with a chrome-plated bayonet. 
The first thrust was in his throat, and then Watson heard a scuffle in the bedroom, and he went in there to discover Rosemary LaBianca keeping the women at bay by swinging the lamp that was attached to the cord around her neck. So he stabbed her several times with the bayonet, and then he returned to the living room and resumed attacking Lino, whom he stabbed a total of 12 times. Then he carved the the word war into his abdomen. He returned to the bedroom and found Krenwinkel stabbing Rosemary LaBianca with a knife um, from their own kitchen. Manson had instructed Watson to ensure that each of the women played a part. So he forced um, Van Houten to join in the stabbing of Rosemary. So she did, and she stabbed her approximately 16 times in the back and exposed buttocks. Van Houten claimed at trial that Rosemary was already dead when she stabbed her, and evidence did show that of the 41 stab wounds, awful, many of them had been inflicted post-mortem. That doesn't make it any No, better. like, you were, bro, no. no. Watson then cleaned off the bayonet and showered. In their house? Mm-hmm. So he was, like, covered Sicko. in blood. And who the hell does that? Gross. Like, you're jacked he's up. He's not a human. Like, no. obviously, you are a monster at that point. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, and he's kind of ringleader, you know? Yeah. So, um, while he was in the shower, Krenwinkel wrote Rise and Death to Pigs on the walls and Helter Skelter on the fridge, all in the LaBianca's blood. She gave Lino LaBianca 14 puncture wounds with an ivory-handled, two-tined carving fork, which she left sticking out of his stomach. She also planted a steak knife in his throat. Before hitchhacking back to the Spawn Ranch, the trio stayed a while in the LaBianca home, eating food showering and playing with the LaBianca's two dogs. Meanwhile, Manson drove the other three family members who were in the car with him uh, that evening to a home in the Venice area of Los Angeles. He dropped them off and drove back to the Spawn Ranch, leaving them and the LaBianca killers to all hitchhike home. Manson asked Linda Caspian to murder an acquaintance, a Lebanese actor named Saladin Nader. I don't know why he wanted him killed, So apparently, though, Caspian had met the actor a few days earlier, so she knew exactly who it was supposed to be. Yeah. So Adkins and Grogan waited a few feet away with a gun and knife in hand, prepared to kill him, like Manson had instructed them to do. Caspian purposely knocked on the wrong apartment door in order to avoid causing any harm to him. So when the occupant answered, Caspian apologized and excused herself, thus preventing the crime. So, and on the way out... Adkins took a poop in the stairwell like a real lady. They're such garbage people. They're just insane. Honestly, they're just crazy. Like, it's creepy thinking of, like, their faces and, like, what they were doing or thinking. Like, And then she took a shit in the stairwell just... So, like, I wonder how many drugs they were on. Like, oh, at the time? They had to just be freaking insane. Do you... Do you think they'd be able to follow all these instructions on a bunch of... Well, I think... I've never done LSD. Yeah, I think they were, like, really big into hallucinogenics, right? Yeah. Do a lot of murders get... I don't know. I don't know. And you know what? They didn't even mention that, like... Or maybe they did in the trial stuff, and I just didn't read it. But it's a good point. And, like, if they were doing LSD, what else were they doing? Right. Who knows? Okay. Two days after the LaBianca murders... Excuse me. Okay. Two days after the LaBianca murders, Linda fled from the Manson family and eventually returned to her mother's home in New Hampshire. 
Due to an unrelated investigation by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, parts of stolen cars were spotted in and around the ranch by helicopter. One week after the murders, Manson and other family members were rounded up by police and arrested on suspicion of auto theft. The police at the time had no idea that they were also rounding up the murderers in the Tate and LaBianca cases. Wow. The investigations of those were already in progress, along with the intense crazy media news coverage because like this shit didn't happen, you know, like it was insane. So after being informed that a warrant was out for her arrest, Caspian turned herself in to the new Hampshire authorities in early December. And I guess she spilled beans. So Caspian was offered immunity from prosecution in exchange for uh, state's evidence. It's amazing that the one who rolls and becomes you know, state's witness mm-hmm. is also the one whose story is the most clean. But well, and okay, there was, and I'll get to it. There, there was only one instance where anyone tried to convince them. Otherwise, like no one actually said she ever went and did anything. She was just the driver. Huh? And just knocked on the wrong door to save their life. Like mm-hmm. that all seems so contrived to me. Really? I thought that maybe she didn't know what she was getting into and that she was like, I don't want to kill anybody. Then why didn't she just go to the police? Why did she wait? Like, why did Because she was with the other killers. Oh, because, yeah. Okay, I see what you're saying now. Yeah, like, Like, she should have gone to the killers in the first place. Yeah, or, yeah, when they started planning it or right after. Like, something should have happened. Yeah. You're so horrified. I agree. I don't think she should have got away with nothing. Like, scream yeah. to the neighbors. Immunity is a little bit like, eh, yeah, like no. in any situation. Right. But I guess if they didn't have immunity, they wouldn't get so many things accomplished. Yeah. They sort of have to have it. Like, just take death penalty off the table. Like, you were still... Which I think is also a really... like That's another thing that people are like, okay, I'll do it. Like, yeah. So, but she was offered that, and there was an immunity agreement um, formed for, you know, for her. So the immunity agreement was seen at the time as somewhat controversial for a number of reasons, like we just said. Some wanted her to be uh, fully prosecuted for the crimes. However, though Caspian had been an accomplice to the murders, the driver and the lookout, and she had not prevented the crimes or contacted the police or sheriff afterwards or before, Mm -hmm. she had not entered either residence and was not thought to have physically participated in any of the murders. She had been described as reluctant and extremely upset during the events of both nights, even challenging Manson. And she said, I'm not you, Charlie. I can't kill anyone. And she was the only member of the group to express remorse and sympathy for the victims. Susan Adkins also repeatedly whispered to Caspian across the courtroom, you're killing us. Uh, to which Caspian responded, I'm not killing you. You've killed yourselves. Which gives me the heaps. I don't know why. Because it's so dark. Yes. As far as the public went, the fact that some of the victims were celebrities touched upon some of the deepest fears of the American psyche because there was the idea then at the time that not only were you not safe at home, I mean, these are Hollywood elites, not safe. And then there's just these normal people that got killed, you know, the next day or whatever. Um, So no one is safe at their own home. But the idea that even good girls are a few moves away from committing unspeakable crimes, which sounds so creepy written out like that. 
On January 25th, 1971, the defendants were found guilty on all counts by the jury, leading to the penalty phase of the trial, which would decide the punishments of the convicted. Various female witnesses, including the defendants and other loyal family members, all of whom carved bloody X's into their foreheads as signs of allegiance to Manson. No, don't do that. They testified that Caspian, rather than Manson, had masterminded the crimes. Oh, come on, girls. That was the best yeah. you came up with. The jury tri- or the trial jury completely rejected their testimony. Come on. Yeah. Like, girl, they're mad at her. I swear they came in, like, skipping, like, holding yes. hands and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Complete psychos. Yes. Oh, I remember that footage. And yes. they're, like, smiling. And they yes. have, like, this long, beautiful hair and these dresses. I think one of them had, like, pigtails. <gasps> Wait, that was before. Didn't they shave their heads at one point and have X's on their foreheads? Oh, I don't know. I remember the X's. Charlie Manson shaved his head. Yeah, but I... I, And then he turns it into a swastika. Mm -hmm. Ugh. Okay. I don't know. Maybe they did. I, but there's those two images though. I remember the girls coming in looking beautiful. And then I remember there being an image of people with shaved heads. I'll have to Goog that. So the five perpetrators, Atkins, Krenwinkel, Manson, Van Houten, and Watson, were each tried and convicted for their roles in the murders. Originally, each defendant received the death sentence. However, ugh, in 1972, which you don't believe in I the don't death believe in the death penalty. sentence, but I know people were so mad about this because that's what they wanted them to have. Oh, I think they should. That's what they were given. Yep. But in 1972, the Supreme Court of California ruled in People versus Anderson that the state's then current death penalty laws were unconstitutional. As a result, the Anderson decision spared the lives of 107 death row inmates in California, including Charles Manson and his four family members. Mm. Subsequently, the death sentences for each of the five perpetrators convicted in the Tately LaBianca murders. <laughs> Golly, that name gets Labia. me every time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's like LaBianca <laughs> murders were commuted to life in prison, which by law included the possibility of parole. Like, at least just don't give them parole. They haven't. Well, no, they've tried though. Uh-huh. Well, the members have tried. Mm-hmm. So, Manson didn't, like we said earlier, didn't actually do any of the killing himself. So his attorneys tried really hard to get him off the hook. Precious one. I know. No. But the prosecutor argued that the family did everything Manson ordered them to do, including murder. So really quick, I'm almost done, but I wanted to go into this really quick that there's a story from Manson's childhood that in, when he was like six in elementary school, there was a boy, I guess he was kind of a dick kid. And one day at recess, all these girls like attacked and like started beating the shit out of this kid. And when they got called into the office, they were like, well, Charles told us to do it. And Charles went in and said, you can't punish me. They did that. They did what they wanted to do. Oh my God. Now Charles told that story. So like, is it true? I don't know, but it's like, that is exactly what this is. All right, so Susan Atkins. I know. Didn't that give me the heaves? Ooh, yes. yes. Manipulative little shit, six-year-old. So Susan Atkins remained in prison until her death from brain cancer at the age of 61 in 2009. At the time of her death, she was California's longest-serving female inmate. She was denied parole 14 times, and her request for compassionate release was also denied. Patricia Krenwinkel remains incarcerated. Following the death of Susan Atkins, Krenwinkel is now the longest incarcerated female inmate in the California penal system. Yes. She got a trophy. 
Uh, she's been denied parole 14 times, most recently in 2017. Charles Manson, he remained in prison until his death from cardiac arrest resulting from respiratory failure and colon cancer on November 19th, 2017. It was just a few days past his 83rd birthday, and he had spent all but 13 years of his life in some sort of supervised setting, either prison, a reform school, or a boy's home. While in prison, Manson was denied parole 12 times, and after 1997, he refused to even attend any of his own parole hearings. He was like, I'm not getting out. Fuck it. Um, Leslie Van Houten, upon her conviction and death sentence in 1971, was 21 years old. So young. She became the youngest woman ever put in California's death row, as well as the youngest member of the Manson family convicted of murder. Currently in, in, currently incarcerated. <laughs> I'm drunk. Van Houten has been denied parole 22 times, Jeez. most recently in 2019. Um, at her three most recent parole hearings, Van Houten was approved by parole by the board. But in each case, the board's decision was overturned by California's governor. I remember when that happened last year. He was like, like no, bitch. No. <laughs> you stay Go in try. that cell. Go to your chambers. <laughs> yes. Oh, I kind of want to high five this guy. And then Tex Watson. Ugh. Yeah. He remains incarcerated. He's been denied parole seven, 17 times, most recently in 2016. While imprisoned, Watson claims that he became a born-again Christian. In 1979, he married Kristen Jones Fedge. Through conjugal visits, they were able to have four children, three boys and one girl. What the f- okay. Uh-huh. Yep. But those visits for life prisoners were banned in October 1996, and after 23 years of marriage, they divorced. Freaking insane. Wow. As of 2020, Grogan is the only... Scramblehead. <sighs> He's the only person who had been released from the prison after being convicted of murdering... Um, or after being convicted of murder and the killings committed by the Manson family. And that, my friends, is the story of the Manson family. I don't murders. feel okay. Like, I, I need, like, a bubble bath. I know. It's a bad story. God, Britain, in the middle of the details, I was just like, and I don't like those details. Ooh. I hate it. Like, I've read so much about this and just. I know, it never gets easier. No. But I feel like you. I don't know. It's just part of the story that's just so freaking bizarre that these were just normal teenage kids wanting to go on this cross America road trip who got lassoed into the gore. And also because there were only two of the murders, like there were the robberies. Mm-hmm. It's like you really do have to show that they were evil. Yeah. You know, because if you heard that, you're like, well, I don't know, maybe like things got out of control and like they tried to break into the house and you like, know, nope. people fight back and like, no, they were evil. Yes. Like, yes, and I'm not defending this. You could have gone in and just killed the people, but they tortured them yeah, they played and it was them. overkill and then writing the words God. on the walls. But I thought it was necessary just to really show like what happened in their brains, who they became and why their asses are all still in prison and should be. Absolutely. So I'm sorry. And this was all from the Smithsonian Magazine, uh, our friend Wiki, and allthatsinteresting.com. So those are really good resources to this terrible story. Yeah, you had a lot of detail. God, girl, fill my wine up. Oh, I know. I need a break. <laughs> Seriously. Cake? Yes. Yay. Oh, 
we should cheers now. Oh, yeah. To what? Everything we've just talked about has been, like, misery. <laughs> cheers to, like, that's what 2020 is? <laughs> <laughs> cheers to hopes that 2020 is going to get better. Cheers to continually thinking it's going to get better. And then 2020 is like, stop I'm already. Shit on I that. don't give a shit what you think. Cheers. Oh, we double. Wow. That yeah. was a long ring a ding. That was impressive. I still don't know what that cheers was to, but okay. Did you say impressive? Is it impressive? Oh, you said impressive. <laughs> what? I need more. That's the problem. <laughs> you haven't told your story. You don't need more yet. <laughs> Are you ready for my story? Do I, do I need more alcohol for this story? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Who it is? So, for whatever reason, I'm a I'm really stuck in the 1800s. Mm. So you'd look cute in those outfits. Uh, no, thank you. No corset for me. Oh my gosh, your boobs would look so good in that. They'd be up to your chin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> I know they look good. <laughs> All right, stop interrupting me. What? I cannot focus. Okay, focus. Okay. Barnabas, <laughs> <laughs> stop it. Okay, we're going to talk about Lizzie Borden. Mm-hmm. Lizzie was born on July 19th, 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts. How do you say? What do you say? Massachusetts? 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 <laughs> Massachusetts? Massachusetts. <laughs> I kept, like when I would say it in my head, I'm like, Massachusetts. That's not right. And then I'm like, no, that is right. And then I'm like, Massachusetts? No. Well, now you have me. Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Nope. <laughs> Say it again. Massachusetts. <laughs> Massachusetts. No. <laughs> There's not any shits in it. It's since. Massachusetts. <laughs> Say Fall River and I'll follow it with the state. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Lizzie Borden was born on July 19th, 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts. <laughs> Seamless. Okay. Lizzie had an older sister named Emma, who she was very close to. Her parents were Andrew and Sarah. Sadly, Sarah died when Lizzie was only three years old from... <laughs> God, you're an asshole. What? <laughs> Uterine congestion. So just so you know, because I looked it up. I don't even know what this is. That is not a vagina cold. Stop. Uterine congestion is a condition from having enlarged veins in your pelvic area, and it causes blood to get backed up and clog your veins. So apparently, if it starts clogging your business up, you just have to... Like, pretty much get, like, your, um, almost like a hysterectomy. Like, you just get all your lady parts taken out, and then you're fine. How old is she? I, I don't know. I don't expect me to do that much. Oh, it's unfortunate. Yeah, very sad, though. It Lizzie is. was really young, so. It's a terrible name, though, <clears throat> for that. Uterine congestion. It's bad. Her vagina had the sniffles. Oh, you're terrible. Andrew was a successful businessman who had a furniture and a coffin-making company. He Odd. Had- <laughs> He had textile mills, 
He was the president of the Union Savings Bank and the director of the Durfee Safe Deposit. <laughs> Stop laughing! I can't take it. I was really going to get through that. Old Durfee. Old Durfee. <laughs> Actually, that was his wife's maiden name, by the way. So, oh. yeah, it's unfortunate. Didn't look. Nerf. <laughs> Sarah Durfee. Uh, so he was the director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. Like, no big deal. Just yeah, sounds important. Jack of all trades. At the time of his date. Yeah. Yep, there it is. Go ahead. <laughs> Put that wine <laughs> down. Okay. At the time of his death, his estate was valued at $300,000. Wow. That would now be about $8,540,000. They're doing, like, okay. But <laughs> they're doing okay. But even with all of this money... He refused to have indoor plumbing or electricity in their home. Savage. And this was common in the homes, like, for the more affluent people. And also, there was a neighborhood up on the hill that was, like, the bougie people. Mm-hmm. No, he wanted to live closer into the city Why, with if the that commoners. was elective, would you elect to not? Uh, he just, he liked to save those pennies. Oh, bless it. Like, I understand, like, you want to be smart with your money. Well, I want to flush my turds. Like, so. when I say I want to, you know, save that money, like, in theory. Yeah, we don't ever really do that. In theory, I want to save money. Like, plumbing, electricity, those are essentials. <laughs> in theory, I want to save money. Realistically, I live on Amazon. Something <laughs> else could be cut out of the budget. <laughs> The family also had a live-in maid. Her name was Bridget Sullivan, but they called her Maggie. Makes sense. No idea why. <laughs> okay. Three years after Sarah died, Andrew married a woman named Abby. Abby was only 37 when she came into the family, and she was excited to be a stepmom. But Emma was 15 and Lizzie was 5, and Emma had pretty much just assumed the role of Lizzie's mother. You know, Andrew was always busy working, and they had Maggie, but Emma pretty much got to, like, call the shots and, like, teach Lizzie and do all that. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, here comes Abby, who had never had kids. And so Abby stepped in and was a little, like, too involved, too eager. And so Emma hated her. Okay. So Emma passed on this hatred and just kind of, like, indoctrinated Lizzie into this as she was growing up to, like, yeah, we hate Emma. Or mm. Abby. Not hard to do to a five-year-old. Yeah. She pretty much just wanted to be, like, the HBIC. Head bitch in Ew, charge. yes. Okay. HBIC. I love that. I always love that. <laughs> I'll make you a t-shirt. So, Emma taught this dislike to uh, Lizzie. They never warmed to her. Also, neither girl ever got married or moved out of the house. Yeah. <laughs> they would only call Abby Mrs. Borden, and they <laughs> refused to eat dinner with them. They wouldn't hang out with them. They would go into town and talk trash about Abby. That wanted nothing to do with her. I kind, I don't love them for that, but also, that's funny. It's not funny. But can you imagine, like, you have like, two, like, grown-ass women who live in your home who just, like, yes. troll you all the time. Like, I feel sorry for her, but also, I'm like, you bitches. Like, Mrs. Borden, I don't want to fuck with you today. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> what? Get out of my house. Yeah, where was their dad? <laughs> the coffin-making plant. <laughs> 
making coffins for who? <laughs> mm. Lizzie and Emma were very involved in their church, Central Congregation, and Lizzie taught Sunday school to children who had recently immigrated to the U.S. She was also involved in the Christian Endeavor Society as secretary treasurer and the Women's Christian Temperance Union. She a busy bee. She is. Mm-hmm. It sounds like really nice work. It does. And then. And then. Andrew was not very well liked around town because he was cheap and, as Lizzie put it, discourteous to people. He was a sassy mofo, too. <laughs> he was also HBIC. <laughs> also, as you're telling this, because I saw the Christina Ricci Lizzie Borden, I keep seeing her sassy bitch face. There you go. Because she has it. Oh, I love her. Like, that's, I just keep seeing her playing this role. I'm enjoying this movie in my head. Keep going. Okay. Tension had been growing within the family in the months before the murders, especially over Andrew's gifts of real estate to various branches of Abby's family. After Abby's sister received a house, the sisters demanded, and then received, a rental property, and it was actually the home that they had lived in uh, before their mother died, which they purchased from their father for one dollar. <laughs> But then, right before the murders, they sold the property back to their father for $5,000, which is equivalent to $142,000. What a sucker. Like, way to go, girls. Yeah. All right. Play those cards. Lizzie, at this time, is 32, and Emma was 41. Okay? Get your lives together. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Stop being little hags. Like, move out or be nice. You're too old for this shit. It's just funny that they're like a team. Yeah. Allison and Leslie, go ahead. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The morning of August 4th, 1892, started out just like any other. Andrew ate breakfast and then left to get his hair cut and run a couple business errands. Lizzie, Abby, and Maggie were all home performing their typical chores. Emma was out of town, and they had an uncle, John, who was visiting, but he was out on a business meeting that morning. Andrew came home around 10.30 that morning, and he laid down on the sitting room couch to take a nap. Maggie was washing windows on the outside of the house when she heard Lizzie screaming, Maggie, come down! Mag, come quick! Father's dead! Someone came in and killed him! Andrew was laying on the couch. (laughs) Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. Can we do an accent? Please do it. I'm, like, just trying to hold in the giggles. (laughs) Andrew was lying on the couch still, but he'd been attacked in the face and head with what appeared to be axe hack marks. It is thought that he was still asleep when the attack started because he was hit straight in the face, (gasps) cutting one of his eyeballs in half. Wow. Yeah. The police arrived and were checking the crime scene when Maggie and the neighbor went upstairs to look for Abby. They found her in the entryway to the room Uncle John was staying in, right next to the stairs. Abby was facing her attacker when she was hit on the side of her head with an axe, chopping off part of her ear. She turned to run, but fell face first onto the ground. She was hit with the axe another 17 times in the head. Uh, do oh. you have a head left? No. Her head was uh, like almost severed from the body. Andrew's head uh, was pretty much like demolished, and hers was like pretty much cut off. This is unfortunate. I, oh. oh, did I say how many times the dad was hit? 
No. He, he was hit 11 times total. It's a little overkill, is he? Yeah. Investigators found Abby's body cold, while Andrew's had been discovered warm, which indicated that Abby was killed earlier, probably at least 90 minutes earlier than her husband. So. That's oh, strange. That is strange. Yeah. Lizzie claimed that she was in the backyard shed looking for irons for fishing. Those were like the little things that weighted down like the fishing mm-hmm. pole. And she was eating pears when the attack must have happened. She didn't hear or see anything, but came inside to find her dad dead in the sitting room and then called for Maggie. Good story. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, got it. <laughs> got it. Two days after the murder... Papers began reporting evidence that 33-year-old Lizzie Borden might have something to do with her parents' murders. Most significantly, Eli Bentz, a clerk at S.R. Smith's drugstore in Fall River, told police that Lizzie visited the store the day before the murder and attempted to purchase prussic acid, a deadly poison. (sighs) Why? She was denied because she didn't have a prescription. Come on, girlfriend. Paper trails, girls. Come on. A story in the Boston Daily Globe reported rumors that Lizzie and her stepmother never got along together peacefully, and that for a considerable time, they had not spoken. Police came to the conclusion that the murders must have been committed by someone inside the Borden home, but there were multiple reports that neighbors had seen a strange man by the Borden's house that morning. Police couldn't find any signs of a struggle or a break-in, so they didn't pursue the theory that it was a stranger. Also, quit reporting shit that's not true. (laughs) Why do we do this? (laughs) Also, the two women didn't hear anyone, there were no signs of a struggle, and the crime scenes were actually pretty clean, considering that they were both hacked to death with an axe. There was no blood, like, throughout the house. There wasn't, like, a crazed, you know. Don't, like, clean is maybe the right word. I don't know. <laughs> At least I didn't take flay this week. <laughs> like, yeah, that's true. Come on. What do you want from me? Emma was never a suspect because she was out of town. Uncle John was at his appointment. So the only two suspects were Lizzie and Maggie. Maggie was seen outside cleaning windows by the neighbors. So Lizzie was quickly narrowed in on as the main suspect. Sounds like Clue. It is like Clue. Lizzie in the parlor with the axe. Yeah, it was. <laughs> The police didn't buy Lizzie's story that she'd been in the barn during her dad's murder because there were no footprints on the floor, which was covered in dust. Mm. When Lizzie was formally brought in for questioning, Homegirl could not keep her story straight. Initially, she reported hearing a groan or a scraping noise or a distress call before entering the house. Two hours later, she told police she heard nothing and entered the house, not realizing that anything was wrong. When asked where her stepmother was, she remembered Abby receiving a note asking for her to visit a friend. But later, she also stated that she thought Abby had returned and asked if someone could go upstairs to look for her. And that's when Maggie and the neighbor went upstairs and found her body. Okay. Those, like, really aren't details that should just be changed. No, like, she's a bad criminal. Yeah, like, you heard groans? Oh, no, I didn't hear groans. Like, oh, she went out, so I didn't think she was going to be home. Oh, actually, maybe she did get home. Could someone just go upstairs and, like, check on her? She hasn't been down in a while. Yeah, like, get... I mean, not that you should murder people, but... Like, it should get you... Get your story straight ahead of time. <laughs> like, like, you're committed at this point. Get outline, it together. Outline a plan. I don't know. <laughs> she was arrested two days after the questioning fiasco. 
In the basement, police found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. The hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon because the break in the handle looked like it had just happened. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> like, what? how does it look like it just happened? I, like, racked my brain. Like, what does that mean? Like, the wood isn't splintered enough? Maybe. I don't know. It's good and investigative work on their the part. The wound looked young. <laughs> And it looked like someone had just rubbed ash and dust onto the head to make it look like it was as aged as the other bladed tools. However, none of the tools were removed from the house. The next day, Lizzie entered a plea of not guilty to the charges of murder and was transported by rail car to the jail in Taunton, eight miles to the north of Fall River. Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Got it. (laughs) On August 22nd, which, by the way, is my boo-dang husband's birthday, (laughs) Lizzie returned to a Fall River courtroom for her preliminary hearing, at the end of which Judge Josiah Blaisdell pronounced her probably guilty. Probably? (laughs) Probably guilty. It's a new one. And ordered her to face a grand jury and possible charges for the murder of her parents. In November, the grand jury met. After first refusing to issue an indictment, the jury reconvened and heard new evidence from Alice Russell, a family friend who stayed with the two Borden sisters in the days following the murders. Russell told the grand jurors that she witnessed Lizzie Borden burning a dress in a kitchen fire, allegedly because it was covered with old paint. You gotta burn those. But Maggie, the maid had told police that Lizzie was wearing a blue dress on the morning of the murders. The evidence was enough to convince grand jurors to indict Lizzie for the murders of her parents. Also, just like a little side note, after Russell testified against them, the Borden sisters refused to communicate with her ever again. Like, mean girls, OG style. (laughs) You can't sit with us, bitch. On Wednesdays, we wear pink. (laughs) And you testified against us. (laughs) John Fleet, the assistant marshal of Fall River, testified that while interviewing Lizzie after the murders, he referred to Abby as her mother, and Lizzie cut him off abruptly and coldly slid. She slid it? Damn it. (laughs) Coldly said, she was not my mother, sir. She was my stepmother. My mother died when I was a child. He found this to be shocking, considering this was the only time she had any strong reaction recalling anything while he was trying to get info on Abby's murder. Come on, girl. Mm -hmm. The defense presented only a handful of witnesses. Charles Gifford and Uriah Kirby. heard that name before and I always think of urethra. Is it Uriah? It's like, Uriah. Okay. Reported seeing a strange man near the Borden house around 11 o'clock on the night before the murders. Dr. Benjamin Handfee <laughs> Benjamin Well, I was looking at the last name like <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Benjamin Handfee testified that he saw a pale-faced young man on the sidewalk near 92 Second Street around 10.30 a.m. on August 4th. A plumber and a gas fitter testified that in the day or two before the murders, they had been in the Borden's barn loft, casting doubt on police assertions that Lizzie's alibi was suspect because dust in the loft 
appeared undisturbed. So people had been in there. Mm-hmm. So obviously her footprints not being in there wasn't super odd. Yeah. Because like they were being covered up by, you know, sawdust or whatever was happening in that barn. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Also, the defense attorney who BT dubs was the ex governor. The governor. Governor. Oh, that's they wouldn't have said it in a southern way. It's <laughs> a good try though. <laughs> Got her initial testimony to police thrown out. Because he wasn't with her at the time, and she didn't understand her Firth Amendment. <laughs> <laughs> her Colin Firth Amendment? <laughs> Luther, go back down! <laughs> because she didn't understand her Fifth Amendment rights. So when she kept giving all these different, you know... Uh, stories for that morning. She's like, I heard a groan. I didn't hear a groan. This, he was saying like, no, no, no. She just didn't understand. I should have been with her. Like, she's crazy. Like, girl, say, I'm not saying shit. That's all you have to say. Exactly. Also, the information that she tried to buy poison the day before was inadmissible. This just killed me. <laughs> because poison wasn't the cause of death. And <gasps> because this was done the, the day before the murder... So surely it wasn't connected. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> you can't bring up what I did yesterday, <laughs> damn it. This is today. And I did not kill them with poison. Cyanide. What? God, it was an ass. Come on. <laughs> like premeditated murder? No. no. It wasn't a thing. <laughs> like killed me. I read that like, what? That goes in the box with the, the fresh axe wound. Yeah. <laughs> So, after 10 days in trial, with the only evidence they could use being that she was the only one in the house, the jury took 90 minutes to find her not guilty. She was a good Christian woman, after all. She would never commit such an act. That was actually part of their little statements. Hmm. Yeah. The two sisters bought a huge house with part of their inheritance with plumbing and electricity. But, of course... Neither woman ever married, and they lived together until 1905 when Emma moved out because Lizzie was hanging out with a well-known lesbian actress named Nance O'Neill, and Emma couldn't take the embarrassment. Get it together, girl. They never spoke again, (gasps) but died nine days apart, and they're buried together. Oh, that's really sad. Yeah, so there was never any real evidence found to prove she killed him. There's also a couple theories I thought I would just kind of lightly tell you about mm-hmm. them. I, mean, I love good theories. Like, a lot. I'm not sold because, like... Because it's pretty clear she did it, but Bitch, still. bitch, cry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mystery author Ed McBain, in his 1984 novel Lizzie, suggested that Borden committed the murders after being caught in a lesbian tryst with Maggie. McBain elaborated on his speculation in a 1999 interview, speculating that Abby had caught Lizzie and Maggie together and had reacted with horror and disgust, and that Libby had killed, and that Lizzie had killed Abby with a candlestick in the parlor. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that a clue piece? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> When Andrew returned, she'd confessed to him, but killed him in a rage with a hatchet when he reacted exactly as Abby had. McBain further speculates that Maggie disposed of the hatchet somewhere afterwards. In her later years, Borden was rumored to be a lesbian, 
but there was no such speculation about Maggie. And she worked somewhere else after the murders. And then she married a man she met while working as a maid in Montana. So how is that even? She died in Montana in 1948. But allegedly on her deathbed gave a confession to her sister stating that she had changed her testimony on the stand in order to protect Lizzie. That's not even a good theory. It's ridiculous. I know. Maybe they just had like a close friendship. But they've never been caught together. That was totally speculation. 100%. He literally was just like a pervy old man coming up with weird scenarios. He wanted to write a book. Mm-hmm. A man named Billy Borden claimed to be the illegitimate son of him. This is a different theory. Claimed to be the illegitimate son of Andrew. Arnold Brown wrote a book about Lizzie, and it concludes that Billy tried to extort his father, and when that failed, he killed him. His theory is that Billy reached out to the girls, and they worked out a plan to kill Abby so she couldn't get their father's money. Lizzie unlocked the cellar door the night before so Billy could sneak in. Once in, while Maggie was outside cleaning the windows, Billy ambushed Abby and killed her. He then confronted his dad. They got in a fight. He wanted to be written into the will. And when that didn't work out, he killed him. It has since been proven through DNA that he wasn't actually the son. So, like, there's tons of details. There's, like, supposedly, like, a confession letter and this and that. But... Mm -hmm. They don't know who it's from, and it turns out he was not actually related. He was in and out of a of an asylum. Oh. So there is a possibility that he was just deranged. Yeah. Not a credible witness here. No. And then there's still good old Uncle John Morse. Uncle John! He can't be completely left off the suspect list. He was Sarah's brother. Sarah was Lizzie and Emma's mom. Mm-hmm. Why was he staying with them? That's weird. Like, your sister died forever ago. Yeah. You happened to go stay with them. He was not a typical house guest of theirs. He happened to go stay with them that night, and the next day he's out on a business errand. Perhaps he went out on a business errand and sent in people who killed them, and Lizzie let them inside so they could split all of the uh, inheritance money. Why are we assuming Lizzie is bad? Well, her story did change a lot. Yeah, I think she's bad. That is a really good theory, though. I mean, there's that's like completely speculation. There's no reason in the world to think that, except that he happened to be there, and he wasn't typically there. Yeah, but that could have... That's the one that sounds most relevant of the three. I also don't know what happened to him after. Like, did he get a piece of the money? Good point. So, that's the story of the infamous Lizzie Borden, but... Do you want to know the craziest little nugget that I discovered? I love nugs. What? So the next year, Lizzie served like eight months in prison before she was freed. So the next year, in 1893, you're going to die. Oh my gosh, okay. Lizzie Borden traveled to Chicago and went to the World's Fair. (gasps) Like H.H. Holmes. I had to get goosebumps. Look. H.H. Holmes is freaking haunting me because why did I pick her? She was there at the same time. What? How did they not meet and fall in love and like make little like <laughs> demon murder babies? Like that is like the psycho Romeo and Juliet. Like if I've ever heard one. Which in case everyone hasn't listened, 
You need to. H.H. H. Holmes is Jack the Ripper. We're convinced. And the World Fair was like his hunting grounds. So how is it that they were both there at the same time? Like, come on. She probably stayed at his hotel. They probably were lovers. Probably. <gasps> we need to look and see if there was like some kind of crazed killer that came like right after that. Like their baby. Because you know oh they gosh. made little murder babies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lizzie Holmes. So anyway, that's my story. Oh, it's crazy, bitch. Mm-hmm. Or was she? Yes. Yes, she was. <laughs> but it just does not. No, you don't just change stories like that. Fantastic. But she got away with it. Oh, have you heard the little rhyme about her? Yes. Sing it. Okay. Um, I think. Let me see if I can find the words to Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. 41. Ooh, are you supposed to jump rope to this? Great. Right. That's what I was picturing. Like, the hand Are game? they doing, like, yeah, the little hand, like, patty cat? Wait, should we do it? Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. That's so crazy. I can't believe we did that. (laughs) Never growing up. (laughs) I love that that uh, hand movement is just second nature. You can never unlearn that. (laughs) If you went to public school, you know it. Oh, yeah, we just did that. There's going to be nightmares tonight. That's got to be a bad juju. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Where can they stalk us at, girl? All right. Facebook is True Crime and Red Wine. Instagram is True Crime and Red Wine Podcast. Twitter is Crime and Red Wine. Uh-huh. Okay. Tiki Talkie is True Crime and Red Wine. You're so good at it. Crushed it. That was a horrendous night. Hey, also, you freaks, we're up to 1.3 thousand. That means 300 over the past week. Uh-huh. Like, not even a week, mind you, because we were one day late last week. Also, we're considering getting, like, some merch, possibly going on to uh, Patreon, doing some more fun things, so stay tuned. And also, like, feel free to give us reviews or comment on any of our social media. Tell us what you want to hear or what changes you would like, any merch ideas that you have. We want all of it. Yes. We're here for it. We're here for you. Unless you want to be an asshole and then just like keep it to yourself. And they can leave. But we love you. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Massa. Massa. Chew. Chew. Sits. Sits. Massachusetts. No. Massachusetts. Masha. Nope. (laughs) I was like so confident I was going to get that. Okay, we're going to get Massachusetts. Yes, say it as one word. Massachusetts. (laughs) Just say it real fast. Like before your brain can think about it, just say it. Massachusetts. Nope. (laughs) Massachusetts. (gasps) You 